Okay, I think uh, we're going to let the uh, children be dismissed for junior church. I want you to turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. These are the two truths that we've uh, looked at so far. The first one, the first week was this. Joyful generosity does not depend on good circumstances. Joyful and abundant and overflowing generosity came from people that verse 2 says were coming out of a most severe trial, overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So the first week we said joyful generosity does not depend on my circumstances. It's not circumstantial. Second thought, rich, generous joy, that shaking can of soda, bursting forth joy is found when we treasure Christ above material things. And that is the the fight that every Christian has to fight on a daily basis in a culture that is so deeply and profoundly blessed. We, We tend to think that happiness resides in what we have or in getting more. If you have less right now, you're thinking that your happiness is dependent upon having a little bit more. If you have a lot now, you think that your future and security and significance are somehow bound up in that stuff we have to fight that tendency and the best way to fight that tendency paul goes to in verse 9 when he says you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty become rich through the cross work of christ when he impoverished himself to the point of giving up his death through that we receive a model that we're to imitate in our lives of joyful self-sacrificing generosity like Christ that leads to the greatest joy that one could ever have. That is the hope of eternal life. It doesn't get any better than that. The Apostle Paul put it in Philippians 1.21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To me to live is treasuring Christ. And if treasuring Christ is your life, then you will look forward to the future with a smile because God has all of those bases covered and your eternity in him is secure through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when we come to verse 10, we kind of switch gears a little bit. He's continuing on in the same discussion, but he's going to switch to a more practical side of this discussion. Verse 10, he says, and here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Okay, now just think about that. Here's my advice for you about what is best in this matter. Okay, the matter at hand is the question that automatically should come to your mind. What is Paul talking about? What he's talking about is a collection that was started by this church a year prior, and it's talked about in 1 Corinthians 16.1. Look at the rest of verse 10. He says, last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Okay, so about this matter of giving, you, church in Corinth, were the first to have a desire to meet the needs that are present in Jerusalem. We'll save time. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you find Paul talking to the church, a letter that's written a year earlier, about a collection for the saints in Jerusalem who were undergoing a time of famine. And so he he writes to Corinth about a need in Jerusalem, and their joyful generosity coalesces in the beginning of a collection that's to be taken to the city of Jerusalem to help the believers there. That's the, the matter at hand. Be generous to the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the specific nature of this context. Okay, a gift for famine-stricken people in Jerusalem. How does he encourage that generosity? What are the directives now 
that are going to emerge from verse 10 through 15, and we'll cover off to that point. Verse 10. Let's read this together. Here is my advice to you about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it in according or in according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. There's the reciprocal nature of giving. Then there will be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little, which is a quote from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Okay? Now, I want to work through this passage of Scripture, first of all acknowledging the word of encouragement that Paul gives to the church in Corinth, and then to look at the challenges that he gives them to complete the work. Okay, so the first, the encouragement, first part of verse 10, I think, covers this very, very clearly. Last year, you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. All right, so he's speaking to the church in Corinth, about the gift for Jerusalem, that the collection that started, you were the first to desire to do that. So Paul's first approach is to praise their willingness to give. You know, it is so easy for me in terms of giving, to come at giving, well, first of all, to avoid it. Secondly, when thinking about it, what bothers me is people that don't give. Okay, that's what bothers me. Now, I don't know who does or doesn't. Okay, because I don't get involved in that stuff at church. I'm blessedly apart from that. Want to be apart from that? We'll stay apart from that. But what bothers me is this thought. There are probably people in our church who regularly sacrifice to advance the cause of Christ. And we look at our total giving as a church, and here's the thought that comes to my mind. If I take the medium income for our community, for our area, does our giving match up with an appropriate proportionate, generous giving. My personal conviction is this. I don't think it does. Now, what that means in my mind is this. There are people in our church who are generous to the cause of Christ, who are carrying more than their fair share of the load. I get concerned about them. I get concerned about them because maybe others aren't anting up like they should, then it places a heavier burden on people that already do give. So when we talk about giving, if God is kind of purposed and, and, and given in your heart a burden to be generous and proportionate in your giving. When, when we talk about challenging people, don't take this personally. Okay? Don't take it personally. The challenge goes to those that are perhaps learning and growing in this ministry of generosity. Okay, so the first thing that Paul does is he gives encouragement to them. He says, you were the first to do this. So they were taking the lead. Now, let's look then at the challenges, the word of encouragement, and then just a basic list of challenges that emerge from this text. Second half of verse 10. Last year, you were the first, not only to give, but also to, and I just love this statement, but also to have the desire to do so. Okay? Now, he then moves on to say this. He says, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. And here's the thought that comes to my mind. 
the church in Corinth had heard teaching on generosity. They had heard the illustration of the church in Macedonia, and they were excited about what it would be like to live such a risk-oriented, generous, joyful life. And they started to do that. They heard about the need in Jerusalem, and they were the first church to start to take up a collection a year before this that the apostle is eventually going to come through with a group of individuals who are authorized to carry money, and they're going to get that collection from the church in Corinth and take it back to Jerusalem. Paul's concern is that their zeal for the gift had started to fade. Good intentions tend to do that, don't they? We hear of a need in church, and we say, I need to do something about that. I need to go visit so-and-so. And then all of a sudden we get a phone call, so-and-so isn't with us anymore. And we're thinking, I, have you been in that spot where you were like, I meant to go and do something? Good intentions don't do anything. Okay, good intentions don't comfort people. They don't help people. They don't encourage people. They're a good start, but they are far from adequate and sufficient. So the first thought that I want to leave you this morning that comes out of this text is this. Feelings of generosity, the feelings, the prompting that you feel when you hear about a need for Compassion International, and you say, you know what? Our family should do something for some of those kids. You hear it, you have the collective sigh, the, the collective sense of um, empathy with those kids. You feel prompted, but the good intention doesn't help kids. Good intentions must be matched by generous actions. I think that's what Paul is saying here very, very clearly. You were the first who wanted to do it. Now finish what you started. What is Paul doing? Paul is coaching the team. That's what he's doing. It's halftime. They're doing good. They're ahead. But the tendency is going to be to have their fervor and their zeal fall off because they're going to become tired because of the sacrifice of the game. And so for the church in Corinth, Paul's encouragement is this. You're doing good, but be sure that you match those feelings of generosity with generous actions. Finish what you started. There is a danger in the collective sigh that emits from a crowd when a serious need is mentioned because we think that that indicates that we really care. It may and it may not. It may and it may not. Good intentions, Paul is saying, can grow stale so quickly. What is he saying? Put your good feelings, your, your, your reaction is appropriate. Put that reaction into practice. Follow fine feelings with fine actions. All right, be sure you follow through. Good feelings, obligatory words and sentiments, no matter how genuine and well-intended, they never quiet hunger, they never bring comfort, and they never truly help people so we need to challenge ourselves sometimes just think in your own life of the needs that you've heard about recently where god put a burden on your heart to help someone in our church who may be in fear of losing their job perhaps you were going to give them a call and just say you know what i want you to know i'm praying for you and i want to pray with you right now so that i fulfill that that sense that i should do something has to be followed by action otherwise it is completely irrelevant and ineffective it doesn't make a difference so for us to feel a certain way doesn't mean that we're going to act in a certain way. Okay, we have to match generous feelings with generous actions. Okay, it's, like it's so important that we don't let generous feelings grow stale in our hearts. Now here's a question I want to ask you in light of that. Does our failure to follow through, to match generous feelings with generous actions, does that failure mean that the collective sigh 
is necessarily a lie. Put it, so I was going to say disingenuous, but does it mean that when we hear the need and we respond together as a church family, does it mean that that response is a lie? That we're all just acting. We're just, we're just putting on that we care. So when someone announces a need about a sickness, we go, oh. You can hear it in a crowd. Is that fake? Because the truth is, most of us never go into action. So the question that bugged me as I read through this text was, is that collective sigh an act? Is it something we do to make ourselves feel good about our response to things? My honest response is, I don't think so. But our selfish inclinations can choke out those generous feelings and generous desires. Right? Our self-centered, full schedule about us and ours can choke out our capacity, our resources, so that we don't have time to help to meet a serious need. Because we need to be careful that the collective side is actually matched with action on our part. The second thought that I want to kind of push in your direction this morning is this. Joyful generosity requires a plan and it requires maintenance. Okay, when you hear about a need, you, you better schedule meeting that need or I'm going to tell you something, in our culture, probably not going to happen. It's not going to happen. The collective side is fine. But if you don't schedule generous acts, and I don't mean just giving. I mean go. Go do something for someone. Go actually meet a need. Defer personal desires for the benefit of others. Readjust your schedule. When there's an event taking place, a ladies' ministry event, call Michelle and say, you're probably bearing a larger burden than you should be bearing. How can I help you? The feeling that I should do that doesn't help her. The feeling that I should go visit someone who's sick. My na- I have a neighbor across the street. I felt the collective sigh. I'm going to tell you right now, I haven't gone over there yet. Why? Because I'm busy. I got plans. I have things I'm doing. But she's been diagnosed with cancer. So the question, and I plan to say this, but the question I have to wrestle with is, will I take the time to care? Or will I just be the collective side that then becomes disingenuous because I don't match the feeling with actions? May God help us as Paul challenges this church, what you felt. Verse 11. He says, now finish that work. That feeling was appropriate. That response, that desire. Believe it was genuine, but you have to maintain it. You need a plan in order to be generous. A plan to be generous will help you to break the blinding and binding effects of materialism. As a church, we have a ministry that we've planned for next Sunday afternoon. Every Christmas season, I have people say, Pastor, we should go Christmas caroling. And then we go Christmas caroling. Guess how many people show up? You know why people want to go Christmas caroling? Because they know that it will be an encouragement to the people who hear them sing. They know that it will lift the hearts and feelings of someone who's a shut-in, who can't get out on a regular basis to church. And they think, that would be so nice. Feelings of affection. Here's what troubles me. They're not matched with generous actions. Which causes me to say, are the feelings sincere? I don't have an answer to that question. Jesus said, by 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 your fruits, you'll know where your heart is. So next Sunday afternoon, we have two opportunities to go into our community and to make a difference. Do we want to, we'll sing for food. Christmas caroling and a collection of food from our, a couple of neighborhoods in our area. Okay? You say, okay, that's a good idea. That's not, my question is this, will you show up? 
Will you come and actually do something with the good intentions? Will the generous feelings be matched with generous actions? Or will it just simply be paying tribute with words that don't change a thing? That's my fear. And I'm saying it to you, and I can diagnose this because I'm looking at myself in the mirror. I know what it is to have the feelings and look at my life and say, you didn't follow through. You meant to call and you didn't. I covered off on one of those kind of things this week with a friend. Went and paid a visit I should have paid two months ago. And I had to apologize. You know why? I had the right feelings, but I wasn't doing the right things. You got to look at your heart. And I had to say to this person, I'm not quite sure why I didn't come, except maybe pride. The situation I thought could be a little bit tense turned out wonderful, a blessing. But it's not until we match the feeling with action. Okay, and I got a lot of open orders in my life, a lot. And going through this text is challenging me in this area. God wants to step up to the plate and get involved. But if you don't have a plan to get involved, I'm going to guarantee you something. It is not going to happen. We're very good about caring for retirement, caring for our family, caring for our kids' education, all those kinds of things. We plan because we want it to happen, and it matters to us. So if the other things don't get planned and done, the question we have to ask ourselves, does that really matter to me? And if it doesn't, I need to go back and look at the example of Christ who became poor so that I could become rich and be motivated and challenged by good examples like that of the Savior. Next thought comes out in the second half of verse 11. He says, now finish the work so that your eagerness, your eager willingness to do it will be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Okay, now this is where we get into an interesting discussion in terms of our relationship to giving and generosity. What does it to look like? Okay, and I think what Paul is saying here is simply this. Give generously, that's clear from verses 1 through 9, and give proportionally, that starts to emerge in this passage. Okay, according to your means, in correspondence to, and I think personally this is probably leading us to think about in terms of percentage of giving from the resources that God gives us. And I would challenge you to think about that prior to having those blessings coming in your life. Set a plan so that when blessings come, you have thought through a response to those blessings before the Savior. Set a plan. The biblical standard, obviously, for giving in the Old Testament was a tithe that was actually about 20-some percent, two tens, and then there was a temple tax added into it. In the New Testament, the standard is generosity that is matched with a proportionate reflection. And my personal conviction is that that proportionate reflection that Paul's talking about here is in in accordance with how God is meeting your needs. And the only pattern that I find in Scripture is the pattern of the tithe. Okay, and it's not commanded in the New Testament. But I actually think that the New Testament is typically ramping up the expectations of God, not decelerating them, not putting them down. You usually find things ramping up in terms of our response to God's directives. Now, our giving should be generous and proportionate, but we must wrestle with something and that that I think is very important. The acceptability of your contributions to the work of God, the acceptability, the appropriateness of them is not, and please hear me, it is not dependent upon the size of your contribution. 
Okay? It's not dependent upon the size of your contribution. Very important that you understand this. Because different people in the context of church life have different levels of income, have, as a result, different capacities and abilities to give. What happens is people that give a little tend to think that their gift doesn't matter. Right? Don't we do that? We look at the people that have a lot and think, they make a big difference. I make a little difference. In God's eyes, it's accepted, not based on the size, but based on the attitude and heart with which it is given. Okay, and I think it's very, very important that as we, as we look at this, we understand that the acceptability is not dependent upon the size. We have an assumption that God loves large gifts. And I want to read for you one passage of Scripture that I think smashes that false assumption that causes people to give out of a little, a little, to feel that their gift is somehow inadequate or insufficient. Hear the words of Jesus. Just when he looked and saw the rich people dropping offerings into the collection plate, then he saw a poor widow put in two pennies. He said, the plain truth is that this widow has given by far the largest offering today. You know what that offering was? Two cents. Okay. Do we ever hear someone says, I don't, I, don't, I don't want you to give me your two cents. Or I'm going to put my two cents in. Okay? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's irrelevant, but I'm going to give it. That's what we're saying. I just threw in my two cents. It's not a significant statement, contribution, but there it is. Okay? That's not how Jesus feels about the gifts of people who have less. And to me, this is an incredibly powerful and encouraging passage of Scripture. This widow has given by far the largest contribution today. All these others, others made offerings that they will never miss. This is the message translation. She gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. You know what Jesus is doing? He's taking a sledgehammer and smashing the assumption that acceptable gifts are large gifts. What he wants is proportionate, joyfully generous giving from his people. That's what brings pleasure to God. Don't let larger gifts discourage you from the joy of generosity. I was at an event, I think this is about five years ago, I was invited to a golf event for a mission organization. And the person who runs this organization has a, a very specific perspective about fundraising. Show people how much other people are giving and you'll get more. Okay? Scares the daylights out of me. Okay? I walked into the event for the dinner portion after the golf outing was over. Up on, a, uh, on an easel is a... You ever see those huge checks they give people like if you win the lottery or whatever? Don't do that. Okay? But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> you know the kind of check I'm talking about? $10,000. And the name of the giver on the check. I was horrified. I was hard. Here's how it made me feel. My contribution today is really important here. This person seriously thought that putting that, that would encourage other people to really open up their wallet and give more. It's not how I felt. You know how I felt? My gift doesn't matter. <laughs> That's how I felt. May God help us never to be thinking in terms of what are other people doing. Deliver yourself from that because that will steal the joy of generosity in your life. God wants us to be filled with an abundant joy as we give to and serve in His work. I'll make this promise to you. I, if you've ever been to like 
large nonprofit organizations, a lot of times they have sidewalks that they put in and then they say, if you pay this much, we'll put your name on a brick. Have you ever seen that? And then like in the middle of the sidewalk, you see somebody bought like a three by three slab brass plate with their name on it, right? I look at that and I say, you know what, that, occur- that makes me want to buy a brick, okay? It's like, no, it, it, it's discouraging. Each individual needs to look at what they've received from God and respond proportionately and generously to God. Here's the promise. I didn't even check with the board about this. We will not let you put nameplates on chairs that you buy for the church. Okay? We won't let you do that. We won't let you put bricks in the sidewalk. You know what God wants? He wants joyful generosity. That just, it just happens. And it, it, remember a couple weeks ago we said, that the, the believers in Macedonia, they said to Paul, we will not let you deny us the privilege. Do you see? That's Paul saying, hey, you guys started good. Maintain it. Keep going. Give in a proportionate and generous way. Another thought that emerges, and I'll just cover these real quickly. Verse 12. For if the willingness is there, key statement, if there is eagerness to give, it is accepted not according to what someone doesn't have, but according to what they have. You know, Paul's saying, if you come to the house of God with a generous, proportionate desire to give, it is accepted by God if your gift is a truly free will offering. That's why, and and I'll, I'll just tell you this, that's why I have, it's why I don't on a regular basis kind of twist the arm a little bit to get people to give. I have a fear on the other side that people would give because they have to. If you give because you have to, giving will strangle your life spiritually. It will become a rule that you keep as a person who was saved by grace. And it will steal the joy of giving. Paul says, you know what? If you do it willingly, it is accepted. Think about this. Who's he talking? Who's accepting it in the context? It has to be God. Paul's not saying, I look at every amount that you give, and I say, okay, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. No, it's accepted by God, who is the giver of all things. If my attitude in giving is a joyful, free, liberal generosity that just responds to God out of the good things that he has given to us, man tends to look at the amount. You know what God looks for? God looks for a joyful heart. And that's why when the widow put in her two mice, Jesus said, stop. Stop everything. She put in more than everybody else. You think about this. People, they, they talked about it in the temple. They would drop sacks of money in that would send an echo out of the horn where the, where the money went into the, into the uh, giving box. And the wealthy would break it down into bigger, heavier coins and boom. And everybody would like, oh. The widow drops in a little ting ting. And Jesus is like, I heard that. If you give out of generosity, if you give with a joyful heart, if you give willingly, just freely, you start holding on to stuff a little more loosely, Jesus hears the tinkle of every gift you give. Never compare your giving to others. It is accepted in the words of Jesus according to what a man has, not according to what he doesn't have. So if your tendency is to compare, please stop. Please stop. Generosity is measured not by the amount, but by the heart. Acceptable giving is eager and willing giving. Number five, verses 13 and 14. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, 
Now think about that. Our desire is not that you will, uh, uh, not that others will be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. Equality in relationship to what? Well, in the text, the equality is in relationship to proportionate and joyful generosity. One thing you will not find Paul doing in this text is sending out a silent rebuke to wealthy people. He's not doing that. In fact, if you go to Romans chapter 16, the end of Colossians, you'll find Paul's uh, personal greetings that he gives to people. In one case, he says to Priscilla and Aquila, you remember them from the book of Acts, to the church that meets in their house. They had to be wealthier people in order to have a place for that to happen. They had to be in that setting. Paul's not rebuking. He's just saying, when you give, give in a way that is proportionately and generously reflective of how God's working in your life. And if you have less, don't worry about it. It's accepted by God. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. What matters is the eyes of God. And I think Jesus just captures that in Luke 21 with that widow who drops in her small gift. Give, I think this text is saying, wisely or with your eyes wide open. Give wisely or with your eyes wide open. Uh, What I mean is this. If somebody and this is in terms of personal generosity towards people, if somebody isn't willing to work, you shouldn't help them. If they're unwilling to meet their own needs, you shouldn't be giving them support. But if they're willing to work and pull their end of the load, you should be more than happy to step in and to assist them and encourage them in the time of their financial need. Don't give to someone who is lazy. Fascinating statistic. The working poor in America are more generous than any of the wealthy. I shared that with you two weeks ago, remember? The wealthy poor are the most generous. Those who give nothing, guess who they are? They're people who receive welfare and live at the same level as the working poor in America. Think about that. Those that are supported and live at about a $14,000 to $16,000 range who who are given their income give nothing, statistically nil. Those that are poor and work are the most generous income level demographic in the country that you live in. Think about that. Think about that. Those that work for what they have, though are poor in America, are the most generous demographic in terms of the amount of money that they earn on a regular basis. The idea of equality here, let me just touch this real quickly. Certainly Paul sees in the church different levels of income and does not condemn them. The equality in this text is not socialistic. It's not communistic ideology. Okay, the equality is proportionate, generous giving. That's clearly the stand of this text of Scripture. Verse 14, he tells us why their blessing exists. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. Now, I only have one way to take this. At the present time, your abundance will supply the needs of others. If God in his grace, has given you more than you need, which is, okay, delicate, delicate discussion here, okay? If you've got your cable bill all set, your cable all set up, and you've got your internet all set up, and you've got your cell phone with texting, okay? Which I'm going to shut mine off now. Um, you got all that stuff done. You're paying all those bills, and you say, I can't meet my needs. Okay, I got a problem with that. I got a problem with that. Okay, because here's what happens. This text says God has abundantly supplied us. In our generation where we live, we are blessed by and large. 
Why did God do that? Well, in this text, nobody says your supply, your abundance is meant to help the need, meet the needs of those that have less. Here's a question for you. Do you do that? Do you look at what God has allowed you to earn and say, God gave me more than I need? Not to enhance my lifestyle, but to practice joyful generosity. That is a challenge that will sink in deeply. Because I think that's the clear implication. And what, what does Paul say? He says, he says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty, when it comes, will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. What is, he, what is the equality based on? The equality is based on those that are experiencing a season of abundance in their life should be helping those that aren't. And when God begins to bless those that have less with more, what should they be doing with the more? They shouldn't be saying, good, my life's getting better. That's what we do, don't we? What they should be saying is, are there needs that God wants me to meet? We have a natural tendency to think that when our resources increase, we can amp up our lifestyle. And what I would ask you to do is this. Find justification for that in Scripture. Okay, I think the clear implication is that, that the equality here is that, that when there's a need, we're generous and responsive to that need. Give wisely, give generously. Because it's why God gave it to you. Last thought is this, from, from uh, verse 15. What he's going to do is quote from the Old Testament, and this will lead us right into communion this morning. As it is written, okay? So he says, then there will be equality, as it is written, okay? So this discussion about equality now is tied to a passage in the Old Testament, and it's the passage where instruction about manna, the bread that God gave to feed the Israelites in the wilderness, it's where that discussion occurs. Exodus chapter 16 and verse 13. Would you just listen with me? Real quickly. He says, Then the evening quail came and covered the camp. In the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? And by the way, that's the Hebrew word, the word for asking. What is it? Is mana. Okay? They were like, mana, mana. What is it? What is that stuff? For they did not know what it was. They've just come out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness without a supply. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Now just think about that statement. That is the bread that God sovereignly has provided for you to eat. It is his supernatural provision for your time of need. Okay, which is to me a beautiful, it is the bread of God. It is the hand of God evidencing his promised protection in your life. This is what the Lord commanded. Each of you is to gather as much as he needs. Now listen to this. As much as he needs, take an omer for each... I have no idea what an omer is. For each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. That's the text, 2 Corinthians 8, right? Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer... He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Okay, it's a picture of contentment. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, and this is so Israel, isn't it? However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell, and Moses was angry with them. Okay, now, why 
do you think that God told them only to collect enough for the day? And I'm gonna, I'll use a phrase to describe. They were to collect bread for the day. Does that ring anything in the New Testament for you? Give us this day bread for the day. Daily bread. Why did God do that to Israel in the Old Testament? And this is what I believe with all my heart. He did it because he wanted them to learn to trust him. Accumulation of material goods in your life will threaten your capacity to trust God and his provision. Okay, I say this as one who has accumulated. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be in any way hypocritical. I wrestle with this stuff in the deep parts of my heart. Why did God tell Israel not to collect too much? Because he wanted them to know the joy of trusting him. And Paul then quotes this text exactly in this passage. He says, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. And the intent of that was, they, if, if you took too much, somehow God shaved it down. It didn't go as far. Here's my experience. The more generous I have been with God, the more God increases my opportunity to be a blessing. And I have watched that over and over and over. It humbles me. Every time it happens, it, it humbles me. What's going on in this text? Here's what I think is going on. God's directive, collect enough for the day so that you can trust me to be your provider tomorrow. And I, here's what I believe from this text. I don't believe there is any promise in the, in, in the New Testament or the Old Testament that if you give, God will make you rich. But I believe there is a clear promise in this passage of Scripture that if you are generous with God, now please hear what I'm going to say. If you are generous, joyfully, eagerly, generous. God's promise, I believe, from this text, and I don't think it's implied, I think it's direct. God will meet your needs. And notice what I didn't say. I didn't say God will make you rich. But God's promise is this. I will give you food, shelter, and clothing. I'll meet your needs. But I believe that that promise in this text is limited in its scope. Okay, I think that promise is limited to generous people. Does that make sense? I believe the promise of God, I will meet your needs. You will have bread tomorrow morning. I believe that that promise is for generous people. I do not believe it is for all people. I believe some people impale themselves on the, on, on the stake of materialism and wonder why they can't meet their needs. They can't get it to work. When someone comes to me with that, one of the first questions I want to ask is, are you being joyfully generous in a proportionate way to the work of God, to the needs of people? Because if you're not, you should not. There is no promise for you in Scripture that you can cling to. This promise is limited to those that took enough for the day and shared generously. And this is the first time this has come this clear to me. The promise is, I will meet the needs of generous Christians. That's powerful. You know what that will do in our lives? That will unleash a joy-filled generosity that says... If I'm able to prepare for tomorrow, fine. But if I'm not, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God. That's what he's trying to teach Israel. God did this. This is bread from, this is God's provision. Why did he do it? Oh, and by the way, don't collect extra for tomorrow. Collect bread for the day. 
Because implied is tomorrow. God will give you what you need. And you'll have the joy of living in dependence on God. And that will produce in your life the greatest joy. Which brings me forward to, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You know what Jesus says in John? He says, I am the bread of life. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Think about that. If I trust God's ultimate provision in Christ, what's it going to produce in my life? If I'm willing to trust him with my eternal destiny, certainly I can trust him with meeting my needs tomorrow. And if I can trust him with meeting my needs tomorrow, you know what's going to produce in my life? A joyful generosity. That gives with confidence. Why? Because God has promised to meet the needs of those who practice joyful generosity. May God help us. And I'm going to, I don't have this all worked out, but may God help us to so understand the rich... Because remember, remember him. Remember, if... He did not spare his own son. Will he not with him, through him, Ephesians 3, freely give us what? All things. All, or it's Romans 8. If he did not spare his own son, but verse 9, freely gave him up for us all in his poverty. Will he not through him freely give us all things? So that when we come to the Lord's table today, we receive this as, this is the Lord's provision for you. This is the bread that gives life, that assures your eternal destiny. And perhaps by God's grace this morning, we can come to the Lord's table with a different perspective. This is God's provision that promises. If he, didn't, if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up, won't he freely give us everything we need when we obey him in joyful generosity? If you don't know Christ, he is the bread of life for you. Know him, know eternal life. Know him and know eternal life. Let's bow our heads together. Father, as we...